Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of $40 in Paris. You are listening to, not Luke, Megan. And Luke. Luke (laughs) is actually here. Right. I'm present. Um, And we wanted to take some time to talk about some of the questions that we've been getting about how do you respond to life when life happens um, as a student affairs professional or as someone who works at a university or another institution, what do you say? How do you respond? Who has a responsibility to respond and to whom? Right. And so uh, we just wanted to take some time to really have that discussion as opposed to sending out an email. Yeah. Because things can get lost. Yeah, there's a lot that can get lost in an email. And you and I talked about this before about um, what I consider kind of the performative nature of the statement, the kind of quote unquote statement. Um, These things happen and they have to reach a certain point for people to actually pay attention. Right. And so as long as it stays below a certain radar, there's no expectation that you put out any type of statement. There's no expectation that even that you acknowledge it. But once it reaches like that point, then the critique is, you know, did you respond? Did you respond soon enough? You know, you put out a kind of quote unquote statement because not necessarily because you're compelled to do it, but because that is the the expectation. And then there are these talking points or things that a person or, or an organization has to hit when they're sending out that statement. And if, if it's not perfect, it's going to be critiqued. You know, you didn't do this or you didn't do that. Um, and so I don't know, there was a, a part of me that was kind of thinking like, yeah, is there a responsibility for an office that is embedded in a department that is a part of a larger organization to put out a statement versus, you know, engaging in this in another way? Yeah, no, you know, we have talked a lot about, um, I guess how I describe what I describe as like personal and professional integrity. Right. So how do we respond in a way that irrespective of, I guess, the statement from a university or from, you know, sort of the higher order of things? How do we respond in a way that has integrity and is authentic? Because I think, you know, I can only speak for myself, so feel free to chime in or disagree. But as a black woman, There's a lot of things that I would love to say, and there's a lot of things that I feel are important to say to students. I mentioned this before. I struggle going back and forth with what is appropriate to say. And so I have there's a feeling of conflict there for me about do I say the things that I feel both as a person, as a, you know, as a person, but also things that inform my professional work. Or do I not say those things to be potentially in alignment with whatever statement comes out from my university? And I think a lot of people who are who work at universities or other places that are putting out statements like these sort of grapple with that question. Yeah, and, and even a lot of that is going to be dependent on kind of where you're from, right? Mm-hmm. If you are in certain states, uh, yeah, you better not make no statement. <laughs> um <laughs> Or you can make a statement, but but you genuinely are putting your your job, not just your job, you're putting in some places potentially even your personal safety at risk because right. sure, there's a, you know, you are a state employee and you're funded by, you know, uh, state tax dollars or and or student fees, but you could be very well living in a community where when you make a statement like that, you risk uh, personal threats to your livelihood. I mean, there's, I think I was just reading recently at Liberty University where they, uh, I don't know if you heard about this, but one of their retention coordinators has resigned kind of in protest mm-hmm. to uh, their president's kind of racist comments on some stuff. Uh, but this person has a long history. His family has a long history of making these types of comments. Mm-hmm. And he started this, uh, it's like an underground liberty movement. It's based like underground railroad. So it's meant to, <laughs> it's to help fund black people who want to, to leave Liberty university. Cause there's like a lot of stuff that's going on right now. But one of the things that he was, he was saying, uh, in like when he kind of went forward and started talking about this was how he's gotten like personal threats. He's had people like, you know, come at him personally because of what he's chosen to do. And so that's a, a, a like another dynamic to it. Like you could be in a place where even saying something 
not even a wrong thing, but you know, saying a thing can have a, a impact on your own personal safety. Right. Yeah, I've been, you know, thinking about sort of the, you know, higher ed politics, but also the actual politics of a statement like Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Right. To me, that is that's a statement. And also the question, do black lives matter? It only requires one answer, you know, um, but then you're swept up into, I'll say you institutions yeah. are swept up into sort of the political fodder of all of that. And, you know, they have to have conversations and answer to people that I don't necessarily. And so, you know, again, trying to find the balance between understanding the rock in the hard place that my institution could potentially be in versus does it feel like a slight to black employees, black students, et cetera, to not say explicitly these three words. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think there's two things that I think about uh, when you say that. I think one is looking at, if you want to call it progress, mm-hmm. looking at the difference of where we are now, where it's almost like institutions have checked in with their their PR people <laughs> um, and kind of going like, is it okay to say Black is Lives Matter? Okay, so you're saying Black Lives Matter now? Right. We're, we're okay saying that? Okay. <laughs> so now it's become like socially acceptable to say that, whereas there was a point in time where like it was not socially acceptable to say that. And so on one hand, you can acknowledge people for the the progress that's been made. But on another hand, like it does cause you to be hypercritical because it's like, well, wait, just just a few months ago, you didn't say this. Just right. a, a year ago, you didn't say this. Right. Two, three years ago, like, like when you had circumstances were pretty much the same. Before it was a crisis, there was silence. Exactly. And, and to me, it's not even that it was a cri- like before it was a crisis, like there, there have been other crises well, right. and yeah. you've had those opportunities to say that and you didn't. And so then of course, like I have to question, like, did the reason for you not saying it, was it because you went into a meeting with senior leaders or with trustees or whoever, and they advise you not to do this? Um, and that, again, I'm not talking about like a one person. I'm right, talking about right. like as, a, as an institution, the decision was made not to do this. Or is it because you just genuinely weren't at that at that point? But then the other piece, and you know, this is more me personally, like I don't care much about statements. Mm-hmm. So like the, there's a difference between like you you saying that black lives do matter <laughs> because right. like because like I know that inherently yeah. I don't I care less about you actually saying that is this type of symbolic gesture for you to show that you empathize with me I care much more about what it is that you're doing on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. and I think that's where I have some personal frustration where you can essentially do nothing on a day-to-day basis right. and then when these crises come up you feel like saying it is enough yeah but you never actually have to do any work that supports that that there are people to me who co-sign that like there's an expect you have more of an expectation if someone put out a statement than you do that they actually follow that statement up with action no for sure i'm you know i'm a (laughs) you know i love the the internet streets of twitter Um, oh god I do. Successful. I love it. I, it's such a place for critical dialogue. Truly. I know a lot of people don't feel okay. that way, but it's fantastic. But in any case, um, what I've been loving to see on the Internet is, you know, obviously there has been this outpouring of statements and black squares on Instagram. You know, on Instagram, so you didn't see that, but it was a mess. It was stupid. Um, but, you know, I like the uh, colloquialism of my friends on the Internet. Open your purse. Yeah. So like, sure. Thank you for this statement. But I'm also going to be in your comments asking, Okay, great. This was wonderful. Let me see your breakdown of upper management. Right. Let me see who's in your C-suites and also pay some money to some black and brown folks who've been under under over labored and underpaid. Where's the restitution? Yeah. So I actually was having this conversation yesterday and I, and that was one of the things I said was, you know, if you, I was always told, if you want to tell someone's priorities, look at the checkbook. Oh yes. Right. And so if we in looking at your budget and we begin analyzing line items and what ways are you financially supporting this? And, and we've had this, this personal conversation where that is a way to support 
and it is not the only way to support, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that your other way of is the thing that dictates, right? So people have to do, people have to engage in the work and connect with the with the work in a way that they are able to. Um, your contribution probably needs to be that you write a check because you have the capacity to write a check. Exactly. You have the range. And I would rather you write a check than to make statements about things you don't completely understand or to try to serve as a mouthpiece for something you don't understand because it's actually counterproductive. And, and I think part of the issue is that, that people have this expectation that, that but that is what you're supposed to do, that you were supposed to pay the money, you're supposed to march, you're supposed to make the statement, like you're supposed to do all these things. And guess what? Like maybe you're not supposed to do all that. Maybe you just need to be like Michael Jordan and you need to make that, that <laughs> and keep your state. Look, that is so funny that you say that because I have been really cackling, um, you know, probably out of distress um, since the city of Atlanta decided to put Killer Mike, whose father is in law enforcement and um, Clifford Harris, better known as T.I. at the podium as also Leonard, better known as Charlemagne as mouthpieces for the black community, you do not have the range. Well, this is what, where I will, I will say this. Um, Lenara McKelvey, maybe yeah. not, but I will give Mike the, I will give Mike at least some credit because Mike, Killer Mike has at least, he has a long history of doing this. This isn't like a one, one person got shot and he just decided he was going to step into the sphere. <clears throat> like if you listen to his Maybe not the earlier stuff, but but if you listen to a lot of his music and you listen to Run the Jewels, like this is no, like yeah. this is stuff he's he's covered. But my question to Killer Mike has been pretty consistently: isn't Uchiwali is it Uchiwali or is it One Mike, friend? You know what I'm saying? Like, and it where, may be both, and, and it may be both, right? But and we'll we can get to this later. But I think there's something to be said about being taking the opportunity to orient yourself in one way when it's popular and then changing that when it's not. And so, you know, I, I have my, I have my critique of a lot of celebrities right now. I don't, first of all, I don't know who was asking celebrities to say, well, I know who, who it was. People were, well, you know, were saying you, you, and you know say what something. It, no, they shouldn't. Realistically, like why, why are you looking at this person to even have an opinion? Right. Like, as, a, as a person, Living on this earth, of course, you can have an opinion on anything. Again, where I will I will say what Mike specifically is, I've heard him speak numerous times specifically on on those issues. So if he is saying something, I take that with a little more credibility than I do, you know, somebody else, for instance. I don't disagree, but I will say that it's frustrating to me, and I, I want to try and like tie this back to what we were originally talking about, but it's frustrating when we prioritize the voices of celebrity because there's, we find that there's value in celebrity status versus folks who have been doing the work. And also uh, the great Angela Davis is still alive with us on this earth. She really is. So I, you know, I have, I have, again, I have conflict there. I feel disappointment there because you have folks who have done this work all of their lives. I was going to say, well, I think related to that, my, my huge frustration is when, and, you know, again, we've been having these conversations this week. My huge frustration is, you know, to your point, like people's work can be ignored. Mm. Right. And I think that's kind of where I'm at with stuff. We, I was, you know, we're doing our annual report right now, and I look back, and we had over twenty-five or so programs that we did uh, this year, and fifteen of them, like at least fifteen, like that were direct. Our programs we did from start to finish does not include stuff that we did like with other people's like co-sponsorships and how to organize, mm-hmm. how to advance social justice causes, like all of those things that we are trying to get students to to do and that theoretical, not theoretical, but the historical context for understanding these and for having conversations around it. We have 15 programs. If you do the math, that means that there was at least two opportunities every month for you to engage in this, for you to, to talk about this when people were not, when it wasn't a crisis. We know these 15 
or so events that we did over the course of this year, again, these opportunities to engage in a really constructive way, the vast majority of people who have rocks in their hands, like they weren't there. So my huge frustration is, you know, I've seen this before where those voices will get loud. They feel entitled to make critiques. And then when the news cycle changes, their interest wanes. That's the thing that makes me wonder, like, realistically, what capacity do we have to do this work at our institution? Because we have folks who consider themselves experts because they've read one book or they've talked to one student or they've heard one story Mm -hmm. or they've read one article or five or 10 or 20. With a specific group of students. Mm -hmm. But they will not engage in, you know, critical dialogue. They will not engage in the the accountability that comes with wanting to be a leader in this work means you have folks that you have to answer to. And mm-hmm. if you're if you're only looking laterally, you're not ready. <laughs> you no. know? Like if your priority is making sure the people beside you and above you are in approval, you're not prepared yet. And like it's that, but yeah. then on the other hand, like because they're not prepared and they don't feel like they need to be prepared. Right. They feel like they have it. The burden still falls on the most marginalized of folks in any particular space to do not just the work of educating, but also the work of advocating and dismantling systems. Yeah. And that's an important thing that you say, this idea of, of systems like it's now it has become, you know, the the term du jour to mm-hmm. talk about systemic racism, right? It's it's you know it's part of the lexicon now to talk about like things that are systemic, yeah. and that word just gets thrown out a lot. Don't know to what degree people really understand that a a system operates with multifacets, and so if your gaze is only in one particular area, and your a your gaze is only focused and fixed on what benefits you. Mm. or your group, then you are not genuinely addressing a system because you have to, in addition to, what'd you say? What do they call it in critical race theory? Material determinism? Uh, That sounds fancy. (laughs) You're doing a lot of reading. (laughs) But but no, but I know what you're talking about. It's like this, um, our interest convergent, right? If it doesn't, yeah, like if it doesn't, directly benefit you in some way you have no regard for and so part of it is when we we take that lens and we're talking about this in terms of engaging with like a larger institution or with white folks it's well how do you make this important to them and you make this important to them by talking about their their interests right how this relates to your reputation in the media how this relates to funding with alumni and donors right so you take take it through that perspective and then on the flip end when you're talking to people who you want to engage with who you want to help with certain faculty if there is not service to the institution then it is of no interest to them people don't want to get involved unless there's a direct benefit to them they don't want to get involved unless they can personally see how it's going to benefit them and or you know their group and so very little can get done unless it's going to be done in those terms. I don't know. It creates a competitive competitiveness in being able to address much larger systemic things because what people do is they boil the issues down to what is affecting and impacting them and only them. No, I don't disagree. Um, I, I fully agree with that. And I also think that raises the question that I think all institutions have to find an answer to is how are we as an institution sorting our priorities? Because I think you're correct in saying like, you know, when it comes to service to institution, how are we measuring that? Right. How are we prioritizing or incentivizing that when it comes to looking at not just the hours worked, but also the hours we're not paid for to support students how, you know, what are we prioritizing? Because I, again, I think we if we are who we say we are, or rather we shouldn't say we're someone <laughs> that we're not. And so, you know, like you said earlier at the beginning of our conversation, like a statement is one thing, but show me who you are, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, th- <clears throat> excuse me, I think when, you know, when we're trying to envision or when we're doing the work of figuring out what is it to, what is it, what does it mean for students to be successful, right? What does it mean for us to retain them? What are the conditions that our students are experiencing when they get here and how are we making those better or worse? I think that has to be infused at the core of the institution because if it's not, then we have faculty, you know, in this example who aren't prioritizing creating equitable environments for students because they're not, that's not a benefit to them. Not to say that they're yeah. doing it, but like, you know, and then same with staff. If a priority is not creating an environment in which we can have these conversations with integrity out, in addition to whatever statements we put up, because students are going to pull our cards, you know? <laughs> yeah, they they are. And I think, and I guess part of my, my frustration when I'm you know, in, in talking about this is, yeah, you're right. And, you know, faculty engaging with this, one of the many problems is that people are not looking at this systemically, mm-hmm. meaning that as legitimate as issues that are affecting faculty and only faculty and is providing a hindrance or a roadblock from them engaging, as much as that is like very real and valid, it is not the only thing. Right. And when the whole idea is that that is focused on, then there's this whole swath of other things that cannot be addressed because we're solely focused on that. Mm-hmm. When your these shifts to police reform, defunding the police or whatever that, that looks like, you are focusing on one particular thing. And unless that's done in an intelligent way, there's a whole other host of things that are one, not actually being addressed. And two, when you really think about your actual experience as a student, a faculty or staff member, that is not actually affecting it. Like that's not impacting as much as you may want to think that probably isn't impacting nearly as much as you think it is impacting. It feels good being engaged in that in the moment. And it's not to say that those things should not be talked about, shouldn't be addressed or shouldn't be corrected. Right. They should. And, but unless you were approaching that in a multi-pronged approach that is also including the things that are actually impacting your experiences on a day-to-day basis, like you, you just aren't doing that much. I want to make sure that I'm understanding you correctly because um, I think I got lost a little bit in the middle. So using the example of, you know, calls to defund police like right so like we've talked about uh-huh. like, what what is what are, what are going to be the what is going to be the the um, embodiment of that on our campus right um, yeah. or in ways that it already has been you know that gets said I think there's a conclusion that people jump to and like they put together words that may not actually be what the thing means right and that's actually really interesting I was so I was just on a webinar um, with uh, Laura Coates from CNN facilitating a conversation between I forget their names now but one was like a retired police commissioner and another uh, works at the Kennedy School I don't know if he does now but he used to but in any case they were talking about um, you know sort of the, the current state of things state of affairs the uprising and unrest you know that we're seeing now what does what does modern policing as they describe it look like you know um and so it was really interesting to hear their conversation um you know around the you know quote-unquote hashtag or phrase or slogan or whatever uh defund the police right and there was this i guess assumption that many of the folks who are saying this, who are putting these, putting this on their protest signs, et cetera, et cetera, don't understand the implications of what that means or haven't thought through what defunding means or, you know, all these other things. And I find that so interesting because I think we make the same assumption about not necessarily our students specifically, but in general, I think a lot of assumptions are made about young people who are involved in movement work. Um, That is to say, I think we do ourselves a disservice and those students a disservice, those young people a disservice without actually recognizing that that's a long area of study in history, right? There's been a lot of scholastic work done around that and not just, not that specific, not just yeah. that specifically. And so I, I don't know, I'm kind of, I'm on the fence um, about what that means for our students using that example of if they come to us, not us specifically, but if they ask 
the university, if they say to the university, we would like for you to divest from Asheville PD or we would like for you to, you know, disengage your partnership with, you know, insert law enforcement office or whoever here, you know, um, I think we it is responsible of us to make sure that they do know what that means. But I think it's discourteous of us to assume that they don't, because I also think that there's a lot of miscommunication, which I think is a danger. There's a lot of miscommunication around what do these words mean? Right. Are we defunding the police? Period. And it's intentional. Oh, go ahead. It's intentional dis- uh, miscommunication. I agree. Part of me even asking that question that I'm saying part of me saying that because I know it is intentional miscommunication is not that I don't always believe that students know what they're talking about. Right. It is the other people who hear that and they don't know what it is. So they don't know what we're talking about. And so then we're right. kind of talking over each other and we this, this concept with other things where social justice being one, where we are using terminology and we know what we mean in this very grounded and, and something that is, I don't want to say academic, but it is, it's very much grounded in facts. No, for sure. And I think that's something that's important to, to raise. Like when we're thinking about what is the role that we play and what is, I was thinking the other day about, um, you know, who are our, like institutional partners, right. In equity and inclusion and social justice work. Um, and like, what, where do we all plug in? You know what I'm saying? Uh And, you know, we talked a little bit about, um, what is like (laughs) helping students understand the difference between mobilizing folks and organizing on behalf of a cause. Right. And I think a big part of that is, Something that something I think just gen, as an institution, we should take more care of, which is saying what you mean and making sure that people know yeah. what you mean when you say those things. Yeah. And and so specifically in relation to this idea of like defunding the police and, and not to go solely on that or mm-hmm. focus solely on that. Mm-hmm. I do think there's a there's a reality that if we are to define um, defunding police in the way that that I think, mm. in the way that has talked about, you know, when when an emergency happens under a current model, the argument is that nine one one is called, and these individuals who are part of this long oppressive system respond, mm-hmm. regardless of what the is they are a part of a unit that is responding to this. And so it could be a mental health issue. It could be uh, just an interpersonal conflict that is going on. But these individuals who have been trained in a particular way that is aggressive, that raises the tensions of a situation, that these folks are being called to respond to issues that may require a softer approach, may require um, services be offered. Mm -hmm. If you look at a higher ed model, when a lot happens on campus, not everything, it's an RA who's being called to respond. Right. That has been trained not to uh, squash or quell what's going on, not to apprehend someone. They're being trained to respond to what is happening in the moment. Right. A counselor is being called. A Title IX coordinator or administrator is being called. And so the idea is you're trying to get the social services, if you will, people. You are trying to respond to the root of an issue as it exists, not necessarily sending out people who were sworn to uphold and protect to solve problems that they aren't trained for and they probably shouldn't be addressing. No, I, I agree. And I think um, like I when as you were talking, I think about like our care and crisis team. You know what I'm saying? That is a compilation of folks who have a variety of expertises to be able to address student need in a particular way. And then those folks come together at the back end and say, OK, here's what happened. What do we need to do to move forward to make sure that this student and our community is safe? Right. Or, you know, is taken care of or whatever. Right. And so I I think that's you know, I think that is what it looks like. And I think um, fortunately. We exist on a campus where that typically, you know, like you said, we're calling the RAs first. We're not calling community directors or res hall directors. You know, we're not calling I mean, campus people will be there because, you know, incident reports and everything. But they do not in most cases take the lead in a situation wherein they are not involved. 
Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Um, so I think on our, on any campus, I think that is a great model. I think we are a very fortunate campus to have folks who are dedicated to case management in ways that other university institutions don't have. Right. Obviously there are shortcomings to any campus and, you know, resources and things. Um, but I think, Using this example of defunding police, I think, you know, that is the mo- well, there are two schools of thought. <laughs> yeah. I think the, you know, for some it is that, you know, police are a last resort or a different and alter- they are the alternative. And, you know, and the other school of thought is defunding is an avenue to, ab- to abolishment or abolition, mm-hmm. you know, which I, you know, I'm not I can't say where I am one way or the other. I know where I stand with it. And people may disagree with me on it. And, you know, I've also lived in places where as as contentious as a relationship is, that is still an option that you that you want. Mm. That is an option that you are able because for whatever reason, there may not necessarily be the means or the tools to address issues without that being a possibility or an option. Mm. And so ideally we live in, we would hope to live in a world where we don't have to have those things. We should hope to live in a world where we don't need a military. We should hope to live in a world where we don't need a lot of these things. And sometimes you have to have that out there. So, so that's just kind of where I stand on it. I would say, like, like I said, I, I cannot say for sure on what side I fall, but I will say this. Um, I think that there is incredible value in envisioning black life without the necessity of police. Yes. Envisioning, you know, the life of people of color without the military. And I mm-hmm. don't think it's misguided to aspire to and study to and work toward that realistic, what I feel is a potentially realistic option. Do I think it will happen in my lifetime? No, <laughs> but I do that's think where, it's, I do think it's possible. And that's where we, we have to get to, like the the process of it and the reality of the world that we live in versus the type of world that we are looking to to create. But the, the pendulum has swung really heavily in one particular direction where we approach every problem through this kind of militaristic uh, approach. And that's not every problem. That's not most of our problems. Uniform crime statistics that the FBI puts out says that by and large over the past, was it 30 years, 30, 40 years, like violent crime is down. Yeah. And like, that's just indisputable fact. It is the board. Yeah. (laughs) The ways in which we violently responded or responded with force has increased. And so whether you're looking at, you know, the use of SWAT team looking at police shootings, like those things have increased. And so like, how do those two things, things coexist? Mm. I was reading an article the other day. Um, it was an interview with Ruth, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who has done a lot of work around police abolition uh, throughout her life. And she was talking about how she was at a conference and there was like a youth track, like a teen track. Yeah. Um, and so she, you know, the, someone came up to her and they said, uh, you know, Ruthie, the kids want to ask you some questions. They want to talk to you. So she said, OK. So she went and she goes and she asked the kids, you know, like, what's up, basically. And they were like, listen, sis. They didn't say it like this, obviously. But they were like, listen, sis, we don't know what you mean. In my say, mind, this is what Right. They were like, we don't know what you mean when you say police about like police abolition or the abolishment of police. Like that doesn't seem that sounds ridiculous, girl, because murder and rape and all these, you know, and I will paraphrase here because I don't have the article up in front of me. But essentially her response was something along the lines of, you know, my response to them was not to try and change their minds or, you know, whatever. It was to help them understand my perspective of why do we use the same tactics that we disparage and put folks in jail for to correct that problem. You know what I'm saying? Like, why do we Mm -hmm. put folks in the violent criminal justice system because it is violent in the violent prison system because it is violent and it dehumanizes those folks. Right. When that is that is the very thing that has caused it. Like, right. You said earlier, like, you know, we're treating essentially we're treating symptoms. Right. And so in any case, yes, that has really stuck with me. And I've been, you know, sort of 
thinking about that a lot and tossing, turning that around and thinking about like, well, what does that look like? And like, you, you know, you raised the question earlier, what does that look like on our campus? I think higher ed does a great job of restorative justice, which I didn't understand prior to being involved with conduct yeah. at UNC Asheville. You know, I didn't get it. I was like, I don't get it. I don't and, get it. And, let's, and let's be honest, like, especially when we're talking about like a lot of these issues is the very same people who would would attempt to practice restorative justice in other realms mm-hmm. will not practice that in other realms, right? Right. right. And so, for for clarity, there's certain things that you can you'll want to take a restorative approach around, but when it impacts or affects you, oh yes, or it impacts yeah. or affects a cause that you care about. I don't even want to say playing devil's advocate because I don't, it, it's not that. It's looking at it through a different lens or a yeah. different prism, right? When someone commits a microaggression, you want that person's head. You want them expelled. You want them, you know, publicly shamed. That is the way in which you want to proceed with that. And if that's mm-hmm. how you want to proceed with it, that's fine. But when a black or brown person does something wrong, it is to be corrected. Right. You're supposed to right. take a, a, a soft hand. I'm not saying eat, like I'm not saying one way or the right. other. I am I'm saying these are things that you need to really interrogate and think about. Like, in what areas do we want to be restorative in our approach, and what areas do we not want to be restorative in our approach? Right. I've been thinking about that a lot. See, I've been thinking. I told you I've been doing a lot of thinking. Um, so I'm in my. I'm taking a. Um, I'm doing a counselor education certification at NC State, and I'm finishing up my last class now, which has to do the the topic is basically multicultural counseling, right? Um, and so I've been doing a lot of reflecting myself, like about that very thing that you mentioned. When it is me. Mm-hmm. Right. If like looking at in the context of, of counseling relationship um, in the hypothetical that I'm a counselor or a therapist or whatever, when I am encountered by someone who is seeking counseling, who um, like, for example, like I have trouble with law enforcement in general across the board. Mm-hmm. I do not. I have feelings about them based on personal experiences. Right. Yeah. Um, obviously, yeah. as a black woman, I have feelings about providing counseling to someone who is a white supremacist, like a self-proclaimed white supremacist or whatever. But the the field of counseling encourages and challenges us to think about how do we continue, how do we still provide care even amidst, you know, those differences. And so I have been grappling with, you know, sort of the idea of like, where does my humanity end in giving serve and being of service to others? But also how do I continue to provide care with context? Right. So mm-hmm. like, you know, we talk about this all the time, like, OK, this microaggression has happened. These microaggressions have happened. Like in that moment, you don't care why they did yes. it. You don't care where they got that idea from. Like now we got to fight because you're talking crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. But the reality of the situation is in order for restorative justice to take place, in order for transformation to take place. And I don't really believe in reform myself as a concept, not not with police specifically, but like generally, because I don't think, I don't know that it gets to the root of the issue, but in any case, how do we create space where we can have those conversations where I understand, oh, this person is from middle of nowhere and no black people there. So how do I, one, hold space for that, right? And acknowledge that and also hold folks accountable in a way that means at the end of it, there is progress. You're attempting to get to zero, right? When we're talking about this kind of abolishing of police. Now I would I would make the argument that like there's always going to be violence in some form. Oh, for sure. There's yeah. always going yeah. to be murder. That's just a personal thing. And we can, you know, no, I think that's probably true. an opinion on it. I think that's probably true. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not saying you, I'm just saying in general, I just think that that is to me, that's human nature. I think there's that aspect is always going to be there. And mm-hmm. the hope is that if you invest and double down in certain areas and you take more of a restorative approach that you can get to that point where is that going to be an option and those things are going to happen? Sure. But by investing in those things that cause deep, larger, overarching issues that, again, you decrease that number and dependency on it. So I wanted to clarify that from earlier and to, I think, to, to get to what you were saying about this kind of reformative, restorative approach, there has to be an engagement 
and the dance that a person is having to do between how much energy am I giving to this issue, knowing that if I give zero energy or if my energy is solely, I'm going to tell you what the problem is, Mm -hmm. that you actually do, like you don't change anything. It feels good to take that posture. Yeah. You, yes, you just, but you just haven't done anything that will get us closer to zero. Right. Because essentially what you're doing is you are ignoring all of this work that is being done on a daily basis. And you want people to respond to you and your needs in that moment. And you want people to show up in a way that you value mm-hmm. when you have not done on a daily basis. Well, yeah, because it's narcissism. <laughs> We're all narcissists. You're right. You're right. You know, and we all know that whatever is happening to us and around us are the most important things that are the most important things to us. But I, I don't know, I guess I remember hearing her speak during that conference and, you know, talking about her work on, you know, envisioning, you know what I'm saying? And I struggled so much. I was like, oh God, girl, I don't know. (laughs) I can't really, I, I cannot see, I cannot imagine a world where people do not prioritize themselves with tunnel vision, right? Because I think prioritizing ourselves, we're always going to do, right? But I also think that we can prioritize ourselves and still work to the benefit of our community or of others or, you know, whatever. I have since become more able to what our great uh, Angela Davis says, imagination is revolutionary. And I get that now. Lita says, you know, social justice work is science fiction Mm -hmm. Uh. because we're attempting world that doesn't exist. I am hoping that we get to a point where when we are making demands or whatever, when we are asking for change or expecting change or demanding change, that we are doing so in the interest of our community and not just ourselves. Because I think even if you are a marginalized person, right, it does not serve you still to only ask for things that benefit you because there are going to be hundreds of other types of people who are di- who are not invested in that. Yeah, there's a, you know, I, I don't know if you heard of Run the Jewels. Mm-hmm. The the group, uh, Run the Jewels has a song and uh, I can't remember the name of the song now, but essentially like one of the, the core principles of the song is this idea that like they don't build jails for one group of people, mm-hmm. right? Um, doesn't exist for for solely one group and that you know i'm paraphrasing but whatever they're doing to one group they can and will do for you it's that whole adage like you know on this day they came for this group and i was silent the next day they came from this other group and i was silent right then they came came from right yeah um there is that I don't know. There has to be that push where people begin thinking about it and not from an us versus them standpoint. Mm -hmm. If I can create them and tell them what they're doing is wrong, Mm -hmm. then they're like, then they got to fix it. And I think what we realize is that it's a whole lot more nuanced than that. The them that you are creating may necessarily be them. You may just be assuming that it's them. Right. And so that, that is with administrators that is with police, that is with business, like, you name it, and it becomes very easy to create a them, and we do, we have a terrible record of doing this in higher ed, of giving kind of historical facts and historical context, creating a them, and then telling our students, go get them. Mm. And I, <laughs> I was, um, I don't want to give the impression of like the proverb, the proverbial, like both sides. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Got to see both sides because sometimes people are just terrible people. But I, I really like what you said about if we are not willing to exclude the them, mm-hmm. all right, right, like get away from that idea of us versus them. There is still no way to prov- like to create accountability. There's still no way yes. to create what we consider socially just progress, which requires that we sort of, you know, reach across the table. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's important because I think what then other people want to do is to operate under this assumption that we cannot move forward unless those people are included. And like, that ain't it either. Right. That's not true. Like, either. some people, <laughs> people are going to get left behind. Exactly. And there's always a way to get back on this ship. 
but the ship might have to leave without you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A part of my, I don't know, part of it is frustration, but there's a feeling as though uh, we we have yet another crisis thing that is going on. We will be back having this conversation, back dealing with many of these same things, and not much will have changed. Mm-hmm. Like You can say that there's progress because now more people are willing to say Black Lives Matter than they were willing to say a few years ago. What significant change has, has come of that? And so there's something I want to acknowledge in our conversation is that we have not mentioned anyone's name specifically. We've not talked about a particular incident. And so you and I discuss this. Part of that is intentional. Part of that is because an incident happens, it raises to that certain level, people are upset they demand action. There's some momentum. And then it fizzles out with the news cycle. And we're left still continuing to have these conversations when the next thing happens. And so in my pessimism, I kind of feel like we can talk about this. We can record this message. You don't actually have to mention a specific name or incident because when this thing pops up again, and it will, we'll be able to have, like, we can just press play. Mm-hmm. And so as I, I mentioned to you, like this, uh, this time loop <laughs> that we seem to be in, right? Yeah. Just we're performers in the play. Mm-hmm. And this play is continuing to move on, on and on. And everyone, like people are invested in their role. They believe the role that they're playing. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't take away the fact that they're still fulfilling a role. And so how do you get people to understand that they are actors in a play? Shame them. That's that's my like, <laughs> you know, that's my first response to most things. But no, I I um I agree. Um and I think that's the challenge. Like that's the thing that first of all, like you said, people have to recognize and acknowledge <laughs> the role that they play in the, you know, in the performance, right? In the posture. And I think there's a I think there's a place for that. I don't know that we'll ever get away from this necessity of posturing in certain ways when things like this occur. I don't know that that there's ever going to be a time where there isn't going to be a performance because a lot of people, like we talked about earlier, they are satisfied with that. But I think in order to get to a place where we can do the work on the back end to supplement that performance, right, with actual tangible change that will result in the diversity we want, the inclusion that we want, right? If we center equity, the only way we're going to be able to do that is if we, you know, we talked about this earlier, maybe this was before we um, started this conversation, but we are going to have to draw a line in the sand because we cannot do the work. We cannot build the capacity and no institution can build the capacity to to create the change that not only we want, but that students today and students in the future will continue to ask of us. And expect of us. Right. We're not going to be able to do that if we continue to hold space for and make accommodations for people who are unwilling to do the work outside of just the performance. Because I think people do feel good. At some point, we're going to have to say, this is the bare minimum that we expect. And this is important to us. And we show that in X, Y, Z ways, because it'll either be a deterrent for people who don't believe in that message, don't abide by um, that way of, of con- contribution to, you know, community health, which I think is what, for me, what I describe all of this as. And it's either going to deter those folks and hopefully it will attract folks who are super invested in that work. Yeah. And I think, The cheapest and easiest way in which you can, you know, support diversity, equity, inclusion, whatever you want to say, is to say it. Like, and and I guess that's why it doesn't carry as much weight with me because it's easy. Like, it's just it's words on paper. It's Mm -hmm. easy to just say that. Like, it's easy to print that. Like, you know, we can craft this statement and we can put it on a piece of paper and we can make flyers and we can just distribute it. Like, you know, ten cents for copy. Um, or, or we can send it, put it on a website for free. So it doesn't really cost us much of anything mm-hmm. to do that unless and until people begin asking very specifically, okay, well, what does that actually mean? And what are you doing to, to actually live up to this thing that you say that you're doing? And too often, 
we look to black and brown people to tell our institutions what we're doing. I've, again, I had this specifically this week where the question was asked, going to actually live up to these ideals? The person did not have an answer. And so <laughs> their response was to look to me to say, well, what exactly is it that we are doing? So what you, you mean, what am I doing? Right. You mean, what is my office doing? Or do you mean what we're doing in a collective? Because if we're truly talking about living the values that you've written on a piece of paper that you posted to your website, then you should be able to go to any office on campus mm-hmm. or any department. They should be able to tell you what they're doing through the problem. Like, who is they? Because we are we when it comes to, you know, who, I you know, I won't get into it. <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I'm saying that because... There are people who might listen to this who think that I may be talking about them directly. The fact that I've had it happen as often as I've had it means that there's a lot of people who think it could be them. Um, I would say the charge that we leave our listeners with is that be critical in your thinking um, and be mindful of what you are satisfied by when it comes to these types of situations. Two, be reflective and self-aware about how you are or are not contributing to the environment that you're demanding. And three, remembering that this is everybody's responsibility and you do yourself and your community a disservice by creating more work for folks who already have enough work, who are committed to affecting the change that you want to see. So with that being said, thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram at UNCA underscore OMA. Also subscribe to our channels on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, List, Podcast, all of those things, all of those things. Like and subscribe. And I would also like to reintroduce our closing phrase from our first season of $40 in Paris. Keep those squares about your circle. Mm. No true words have ever been said. <laughs> <laughs>